Welcome to The Vagicians. And we're here for you, the typical female, answering your not-so-typical questions women have about their health and well-being. Our panel of in-the-trench OBGYN experts includes Dr. Roslyn Mallory, Dr. Jacob Martin, and Dr. Sam Wolfe, who don't shy away from the challenges of female health today. We'll discuss everything from babies to menopause, periods and breasts, and everything in between. The Vagicians podcast is brought to you by Wolf Variety Entertainment and made possible by All About Women OBGYN, the Healthy Start Program, Emerald Coast Obstetrics and Gynecology, and the Panama City Surgery Center. Let's jump right in and jam with our team of Vagicians, Dr. Mallory, Dr. Martin, and Dr. Wolf. Here's our host, Rayanne Kruger. everybody. Welcome back to The Vagicians. This is episode 11. This is Rayanne Kruger, your host. And I'd love to say hello to our doctors, Dr. Sam Wolf, Dr. Rosalind Mallory, and Dr. Jacob Martin. Hello. Hey. Hey. So happy to have you back with me. We're going to jump right in. We're going to answer listener questions. Let's start. When is the best time to talk to your daughter about sex and what should be covered during that conversation? I don't think that there's necessarily a too early time to talk to your children in general, whether it's a boy or a girl, about sex. You can always make it basic, like the birds and the bees, and talk about their bodies. And then as you gauge their maturity, you can add more things in as they get older. Yeah, I think that especially girls mature at different rates. You're going to have some... 15-year-olds that are kind of what you would determine as a nine-year-old maturity level. I think the key is is you want to intercept their friends. You want to intercept YouTube. You want to intercept all these other sources of knowledge that they're going to have access to. And you you want to be the first. And you kind of have to be ready to address this stuff. And if you don't bring it up, they're going to do it. And they may do it when you're driving down the highway and just yell out, what's a clitoris? Or oh, something no. like that. And now you're, you're driving down the highway and have to explain this. So I think it's good to have it be prepared to discuss it. I think one thing that we've kind of touched on this before, too, is I had a patient just I don't know, a couple of days ago that asked me, hey, what, when, how early should I bring in my daughter to talk about this? And just what Rosalind talked about, there's, there's not an too early of an age. And, and the big thing is we don't even have to do an exam for the first several years. We don't really necessarily need to do an exam unless they're having an issue. And that can relieve a lot of the pressure and stress that comes with having an appointment with the gynecologist. You know, it can just be an educational visit. I think the openness between the relationship between the moms and the daughters, especially, is a really good thing. It's a lot less stressful for these girls when they're coming in, when they do. We we, we don't usually see them in the OBGYN offices until around 12 or so when usually what's bringing them in is a menstruation problem or the mom finds out that the child has been sort of Amorous. Or an older sister who um, got pregnant. Now the younger exactly, sister doesn't want that exactly, to happen. Yeah. So. Right, right. And we actually covered this in previous episodes about when the best time is to bring them in. I've kind of let my own daughters lead the way in the discussion. If they asked a question, then I would answer that question and then see if they asked more. So it is a, a good thing to listen to the kids, but also stay ahead <laughs> of what they know and, and fill them in with truth. I have a a really interesting question that came in that I okayed with the the asker if I could repeat it word for word. So I want to jump right into that. This episode specifically and why I started with that first question is going to be about sexual trauma and talking to our daughters or to the young women in our life about the young girls in our lives about 
sex kind of sets it up so that they can not experience as much sexual trauma later, we hope, later. And so I wanted to um, dive right into this question, and I'm going to read it word for word. So here we go. I would like to know more about sexual dysfunction and what can be done. I wish women could have their own Viagra. My story is sad. I got married when I was 26. It was an unconsummated marriage and didn't last long. I waited for him as he was my chance and I took it. When it came time, he couldn't deliver. He deflated like a floppy garden hose and blamed me. I have cerebral palsy. Every attempt with a partner, that partner has told me that it was like hitting a wall. My cervix? Question mark. And it's very painful. I have had one good experience, and that is when I was with someone who knew what he was doing, and I smoked marijuana to relax beforehand. This was a long time ago and memorable. Doctors don't know what to do when someone presents with a gynecological and a neuromuscular disorder like cerebral palsy. I can't get through exams without being held down. Way too traumatic. Anyway, would love to hear about sexual dysfunction and have it be covered. And then she said more, uh, surgical removal of hymen, total hysterectomy. And she has a feeling that maybe her vagina is angled. Would pillows help with this? Should she smoke marijuana every time? What do you guys think? There's a lot in that question to unpack. As far as them hitting something, I would assume she's been having periods. So I don't think it's necessarily a vaginal septum, but that could be in the play. But she's had a full hysterectomy, so he could be hitting a cuff. But also with cerebral palsy, she could be having a muscle contraction, and that's what they're hitting. I don't think she needs to have marijuana every time she has intercourse. And I would say pillows and repositioning are going to be key for her, trying to find a good place that's most comfortable for her and for him. Because with CP, when they have with cerebral palsy, when they have those muscle contractions, there's really not a whole lot you can do to relax that muscle and get it straighten out. So the big thing is trying to get good positioning. And as far as exams are concerned, I would say you need to talk to your gynecologist because there should be no reason we're holding you down to do an exam. There's a difference between we're using some retraction to help us visualize, but not holding a patient down because they're in pain. That shouldn't be happening. So piggybacking off what Rosalind's talking about is in cerebral palsy, it's a neuromuscular disorder where you're having contractions, right? And you have muscles everywhere that can cause contractions. Specifically in this case, what I think is going on is when they're hitting a quote unquote wall, you have muscles inside your pelvis called like the levator ani or some of these muscles that are inside your pelvis. And they can be intensely contract or tensely contracted. It's kind of like having a Charlie horse when you wake up in the middle of the mm -hmm. night, but it's okay. in your pelvis. Okay. So this can be something that can happen as well for people that have traumatic um, sexual experiences in the past lead to this tense, tight pelvic floor. And over time, you can lead to this tense contractile state, which is hence why it's super painful whenever you have intercourse or anything goes inside the vagina, such as a speculum in an office or a penis. It's essentially like you have a Charlie horse and you keep keep hitting it and again and again. You know, it's, it's not comfortable at all. And specifically, I think with cerebral palsy, you have that tense contraction. So the key is to getting that muscle to relax. Yeah, and I actually have a, a long-time patient that has cerebral palsy, and she has really gone through the gamut with this. I don't know that it's been as traumatic as this patient's sort of experience. And, you know, I, I've had a lot of conversations with her, like, how did you deal with this? And she's explained to me that a lot of times this is positional. 
I think Dr. Mallory just said that position can be everything here. If it's hurting, you just really have to kind of try to find a different position or a way to make it not hurt as much. Lubrication should be a key. Um, well, and, and then there's there are pharmacologic approaches to this as well. I want to reiterate that this is an entertainment show and this is not medical advice or anything like that. But there's a lot of unexplored uses of marijuana in the world of medicine. And there's several states now that have legalized marijuana for medical use. And this may be one of those realms where it might be of benefit. But like I say, you're not going to have a whole lot of studies that are going to show that kind of thing. I think there's other pharmacologic things as well. In fact, the patient I was just discussing a minute ago, she's has she's benefited from what's called a baclofen pump, which is actually a little subcutaneous pump, a pump that's actually surgically implanted under the skin. And it can be refilled with the medication called baclofen, which is a muscle relaxer, essentially. And the benefit of that is that now she's getting that medication directly into the muscles and it's you're bypassing the GI tract. So if you took a baclofen pill, it just it, it wreaks havoc on your gastrointestinal system. Whereas when it's given as a pump, you're kind of bypassing that. And so you ah, can get not okay. only the medicine right to the source, you're getting it focally. And that, that can be a benefit. I will tell you, I have you know, many years of, of seeing this patient and a few others that I have as well. The, the positioning can be very difficult. It can be difficult, but you just go slow and you talk your way through it. I think if the patient is feeling really uncomfortable that she's being held down, I, I would sort of encourage her to find a different gynecologist that's uh, a little more for sure. a little more patient and just take take their time because it's really all it takes. It takes time. And there's two other things which we haven't mentioned as well is that's been tried in the past. They had um, vaginal Valium is something that people have tried in the past mm-hmm. to try to get the, the pelvic musculature to relax. And the, the data is kind of wishy-washy on that. Is it because you're actually just systemically absorbing it and you're getting the benzo in your system, which is causing you to relax? Or is it actually some local effect of you absorbing it in the pelvis or something yeah. else? Yeah. The, and then, and then uh, has been locally for, we'll yeah. talk more about this when we get into vaginismus, but it's also been used in this scenario. Remember, Botox is botulinum toxin, one of the most, one of the most poisonous <laughs> things known to mankind. When used in very, very, very tiny doses, it can relax muscles for an extended period of time, four to six months. If you inject it into your little wrinkles into your forehead, it kind of can kind of smooth that out. But in this case, you could inject it theoretically if the person knows what they're doing. I don't claim to be an expert in doing this, and I would recommend going to a tertiary care center or somebody that's really specialized to do this sort of procedure where they would inject uh, small amounts of botulinum toxin to relax those muscles and maybe get about three to four months of relaxation out of that. I would recommend seeing like a urogynecologist. Those are really the ones who have been Mm -hmm. trained to do the Botox injections. They also are more likely to have a pelvic rehab program where they teach the patient how to relax certain muscles, how to target those muscles and cause relaxation. All right. So it's physical therapy. Yeah. So so in this specific case, there's regular physical therapy and there's pelvic floor physical therapy, which is focused physical therapy on the pelvic floor muscularity or musculature. And this is something that you have to be specially trained to do. Not every physical therapist has the training to do this. And, and it's intense biofeedback where there's actually, you know, like a gloved finger, which goes inside the vagina where they palpate different muscles, teaching you to relax specific areas. It's really, really helpful. And there's a lot of great data coming out now that's showing in these specific cases of pelvic floor dysfunction. And this is kind of an extreme case of that with cerebral palsy, where it, it has m- great benefit by doing this course of pelvic floor physical therapy. Yeah. So I'm just a, obviously just layman here with, with all of this, but I've learned so much from you three and from studying and preparing for the show. Would masturbation help her? I mean, if she learns how, you know, what feels good and she could direct her partner to 
I mean, I want to help her, of course, and you have with your information. Is there something she could that would benefit her from masturbation or self-pleasure? I think from uh, an orgasm standpoint, yes, you definitely a lot of people have clitoral stimulation can lead to orgasm. So I think that can definitely be helpful. But I think from a her specific case, it's a neuromuscular issue with tense contraction of the pelvic floor. So I don't think necessarily that clitoral stimulation is going to cause those muscles to relax. I think it's going to need more of a either pelvic floor physical therapy in combination with the botulinum toxin or some sort of other pharmacology just due to the nature of her um, illness. I think okay. masturbation in her case might benefit her just kind of practicing or getting good at having an orgasm. Sometimes right. it can be very difficult, especially if you're uncomfortable and things like that. But but also there might be a if she's using a toy like a vibrator or something like that, she might get some benefit from the stretching effect because you know that mm-hmm. that can help stretch those muscles. I, I think that especially patients that kind of had have had some trauma, which we can talk down the line about, but those patients are going to be a lot more comfortable when they're in control of the insertion. And so that might benefit as well. And also with the toy, it might give her a better idea of what positions are more comfortable right. for yeah. her. Yeah. Great, great. Such great advice. Okay, let's move on. This question is specifically about rape. If you are raped, what is the first thing you should do? Should you go to the hospital? Should you call the police? Should you contact a gynecologist? Should the gynecologist be involved from the very beginning? What's the first thing that a rape victim should do? The first thing she should do is go to the ER. From the ER, they will call. There's a specific rape kit exam. So it's not something that most gynecologists are trained to do, but ER physicians are. Okay. Basically, they have to take photographs of any bruising, any scratches on her. They have to do samples underneath the nails. They do oral samples. They do a full physical exam. They look for semen. They take samples. They do a speculum exam. They also Mm -hmm. give her prophylactic treatment for certain STDs. And it's a full workup. It's not something you can just pop up at your GYN office and have them evaluate it for. You need because a specific kit. You need a specific kit because it's a not only that, it's also a chain of custody that has to be established. So they call the police and they give them all the evidence that they've collected. If you do it at a GYN office, we don't have that same okay. chain of custody. Okay. Really where the GYN is going to come involved is is if there's really trauma, if there's been trauma that needs a repair and needs to be surgically addressed. So you mean physical trauma, because obviously this is psychological trauma, trauma, but that you mean actual psychological trauma, that's going to be a multidisciplinary approach to that. You're going to have a psychologist involved, sometimes a psychiatrist. You're going to have rape victim advocates are extremely helpful. And some of the most dedicated people I've ever seen in my life, some of these rape advocates, and and also the the same thing with the child abuse uh, uh, advocates, they, they're they really the mediators and sort of make sure that these folks are getting to where they need to go and things like that. So and piggybacking off of that, I mean, this is part of it, but uh, date rape drugs that are out there and women that are exposed to this kind of trauma and not even know they could be on a first date with someone. It could be somebody that they meet at a bar. And the most popular ones are obviously the Rufi or the Rohypnol, GHB, GBL, um, ketamine also known as club drugs, as I've done a little research on this and have, in fact, been drugged myself and have avoided any kind of sexual trauma. But if a woman is uh, date raped, is it the same? I mean, there's so much shame with this, right? Because we feel like we should have known, right? We should have known and we should have been able to take care of ourselves. We didn't watch our drinks and they don't want to go to the police. 
What would your? Yeah, I, think, I think that there's more of the embarrassment and guilty, right. and I put myself right. into the situation, and and you that that's more just that's going to need therapy to get to sort of do that. But if the even if that's the case, if you wake up and you're like, I can tell I've been, you know, I don't remember giving consent to sex, and I can definitely tell I've been had that someone's had yeah. sex with. Okay, that's still if there's a criminal act that's occurred there, which they're very very easily. And the patient still needs to go to the ER, even if they're not hurt, even if they're not in pain, because of exactly what we were talking about with the chain of custody of evidence and things like that. You have to get semen. That that could be potentially DNA evidence in a case. And so that's extremely important. Do not pass go straight to the emergency room because anything that they do between that moment where they feel like they may have been raped and that point where they're getting the specimen collected, that could potentially be used against them in their case. Additionally, these drugs mixed with alcohol, and that's typically how they are administered to the victim, can be extremely dangerous and life-threatening. So if you have just been drugged and you're starting to feel the effects, call 911 immediately. Go to the hospital, whatever you tell your friends, whatever you need to do to, to be taken care of. And they leave the system very quickly. So they're very difficult to trace following well, not um, all, an incident. You know, not all of, of them, these, but some, some of these can hang around a long time. That's one of the problems. Actually, right. Well, the effects that. hang around for a long time. I mean, mm -hmm. I was sick for yeah. months following, even though they couldn't detect it in my blood. And I was told to come back and have a hair sample a month later. Right. By that time, you're trying to heal and you don't want to relive that trauma, <laughs> you know, go through it all again. So it's it's really a horrible, horrible thing. Okay. Let's talk about past actual like physical trauma, whether there were the, the wrong sex toy was used, you know, rape, husband. Does it help to talk about all of this with someone like you, uh, with a gynecologist, with your OBGYN? When do I, you feel it's important to refer to a therapist? I think this is something that I always ask for all my annual exams. I'll ask them if they have any history of abuse, verbally, physical in the past, because it's not so much that we can do it to start. We, well, first off, we can give them advice and resources on who to get connected with and try to get in getting that process started. If they need help from physical abuse, sexual abuse, we can be a resource center and get them connected to where they need to be. And if anyone's going to ask someone about this, it's going to be your gynecologist because we're doing a intimate well woman exam every single year. So we, well, I think talking to your <laughs> gynecologist, whether it was a recent issue or something that happened in the past, is good to know because if you start having a flashback on the table, we should be able to know about it and maybe make it a little bit more comfortable a situation and take a little longer to actually do the exam. Because sometimes in themselves, just doing a speckum exam can be triggering. Yeah, like I had a patient this past week, she had a history of rape in the past, and but she wanted contraception, she wanted an IUD. And she has horrible flashbacks every time you do a uh, speculum exam, mm. so, but she really wanted the IUD, right? So there's select cases like this that we can work around it. I actually pre-dosed her with a small dose of benzodiazepine. She came in, she had a driver, it went super smooth. Now she's got contraception for five years and it's not like a traumatic experience. I, I think her. the key is for, and not just gynecologists, whether that be, it could be just their family doctor or even a, a nurse practitioner or whoever seeing that patient, it's key to ask, even if you're not a gynecologist per se, because I can't tell you how many times, you know, they'll, they'll never mention that. They'll, they'll very, very rarely do they mention it. But when I ask, you'll sometimes get this long pause and, and then the patient sometimes will just start crying. And, and you know, and that right. then you, you have to, as the practitioner, really kind of take a step back. Don't rush. 
And you just uh, the way I handle it personally is I say, do you, do you want to talk a little bit about this? And it, they may not want to. And that's OK. You want to let them know that door's open for a new, another thing, because really, you know, being a, a patient physician relationship, it has to be built. You don't just show up and see me for the first day and you just, hey, I'm your gynecologist. I'm Sam Wolf. Hey, you're the patient. Let's talk about all your most intimate details in life. Right. You know, that doesn't, that isn't really how it happens. It's, it's seeing these patients, you know, year after year, you build that relationship. So if there's internal trauma or some kind of physical trauma as a result of rape, what do you do? I mean, is it, sometimes does it require surgical repair? Does it require just long-term, maybe kind of like physical therapy to recover from this? Well, first of all, it's not always rape. Re- consensual sex can actually uh, cause, in fact, I think the worst physical trauma I've ever seen was actually consensual sex. And that's the same thing. You're going to go to the ER, especially if there's bleeding involved and things like that. But I think that's going to be on a case-by-case basis, depending on the severity of it. Once again, anytime there's a rape or a suspected rape, it's got to go through the ER. And if the, the ER doc will do that preliminary assessment, and then if they think that there's some physical trauma at that point, they, we typically would get called in. Mm-hmm. What do you think is going to be the tipping point where women feel like it's okay to report rape? I mean, most rapes are unreported. Most of them. I agree so. that most rapes are unreported. And I don't know the answer to that. And I think education is key and there's more to it than that. People's lives are complex. They have a lot of a huge emotional component that comes with it. And, and, and like I say, I had a patient, I don't know, uh, maybe a, eight or nine months ago that literally I, she goes, I, I asked, I always ask, do you ever have a history of, of, of abuse or trauma like that? And she goes, do you realize I've never had a doctor uh, or anybody ask? Wow. Me that? She, she unloaded it on me. She goes, I've, I've, I've already gone through it, you know, and I've d- done work myself through this. But, you know, no one's ever asked that. And, and you know, th- there are definitely long term consequences from that. She was an abusive relationship for yeah. 20, 20 I, years. Or I think we're talking about it more. It's a little more in popular culture now. Mm-hmm. So I think we do have at least a better outlook on what it can be than what it used to be. I think mm-hmm. it used to be a lot more behind clothes, you know, with all this Harvey, Wein- all this kind of crazy stuff right, you hear about right. out in the news. You know, I think it's becoming more not OK, but more acceptable. More, people are wanting to at least be free to discuss these things now. And I still think there's a huge component that's not getting discussed or people are talking about. But I think that we're, we're going down the right road by at least having these discussions. Not well, to be majorly controversial or anything, but I think a more appropriate question would be, uh, what's the tipping point of when it should be reported? Because if every single little thing gets reported, I think people blow it off. True. I think the, the average public person would say, well, you know, that, that this is just too much complaining about this little thing and that little thing. I think it's more important to find where's that point of with this is, this is absolutely inappropriate. This needs to be told. This story needs to be told, that kind of thing. I think, you know, and I don't know the answer to that. I really don't. Yeah, but yeah. but I well, know I, that, you know, I believe you know, talking about during it during the Me right? Too movement it would be a classic sort of thing. You know, there was a lot of people frustrated with the Me Too movement. That right. Wait a minute. Are these people you know, are they lying or is it really that that much going on? And and I don't know. What, what do you think on that? I think it still needs to be reported. I think that's how you had all the Harvey Weinsteins of the world getting away with what they were doing because nobody was reporting it. But once you start reporting it and more people start coming out and you realize, okay, this was a bigger problem than we thought of. I think as far as Me Too is concerned, I think that was their main point. Like you need to get out and talk about it. You're not alone if you keep being silent and quiet about it. Then these predators will continue. Well, and and shows like The Magicians help help that. Definitely. I want to wrap this show. Such a serious topic. Normally we have so much fun and and of course it's fun to be educated and talk openly about stuff like this. But I want to wrap this show with a question that 
we've kind of answered, but I'd like to get your take on it and maybe what you've done to help patients. Uh, Because I was raped, I will never be comfortable having sex again. This is a patient that sent that in. No, it's a rumor rumor hit list. Oh, okay, rumor. I refer to a sexual therapist. I think there's a, there's a, it's a multi, you got to hit this from a bunch Mm -hmm. of different angles. I don't think there's any straightforward, this is the solution, this is your catch-all. I think when you do have that history, there is a huge psychological component of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's either getting someone set up with a psychologist or what uh, Sam was talking about, the, the rape group is going to be huge, right? right? I think there's a physical component of it where you do have, how we talked about, you can have that anticipation before sex, that flashback before sex, you're contracting your pelvis, right? And there's things that you can do over time, we talked about with, with toys, you know, self for different things like that, with mm-hmm. medication just to help relax that pelvic floor. So really, and lubrication beforehand, lots of foreplay. There's a, there's, I think it's a multifaceted approach to this. There's not mm-hmm. one, just one catch-all solution for these. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that if, it, if this were like a true false thing, I would probably err on the false side because I think that any patient, no matter how traumatic the event is, if they're motivated and they want and they want to get back to a normal life, and it's extremely difficult and it can take it may take years. But if you say never, okay, well, you've just kind of shut the door on it. And you're like, I think think you have to you have to rely on help from both gynecologists, therapists, groups, things like that we've talked about. And like I said, one one of the statistics I love to tell is is about 95 percent of all sexual dysfunction can improve or be completely fixed. That's great. I love that. That's a great stat and so important. Well, thank you, Vagicians, for uh, joining me today and talking t- about this very, very serious topic. When we come back, um, episode 12, a final episode of season one, we're actually going to cover vaginismus. And uh, the, the perfect lead-in has been this episode. So thank you so much, all three of you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The Vagicians, where we answer the questions you may be afraid to ask. A little legalese for you. The physician hosts of this podcast are actively practicing doctors in the field of obstetrics and gynecology. They are all three licensed to practice medicine in their respective state and are either board certified or board eligible within their specialty. This podcast is for entertainment and education only. Any content from this program should not be considered official medical advice, and listening to this podcast should not by any means be considered a legal patient-physician relationship. If you have a medical issue worthy of discussion on this program, you should seek immediate medical attention with the physician of your choice. The Vagicians is made possible by our generous sponsors, All About Women OBGYN, with a mission to promote, protect, and restore health in women's reproductive systems and a legacy that spans greater than 50 years, you can trust all your women's healthcare needs to All About Women OBGYN. Healthy Start Coalition of Bay, Franklin, and Gulf Counties. Healthy Start's mission is to promote healthy pregnancies, babies, and families by providing services and facilitating access to resources through community partnerships while advancing racial equity and cultural responsiveness. Emerald Coast Obstetrics and Gynecology. Offering a dedicated medical care team, Emerald Coast specializes exclusively in women's health services in Panama City, Florida, and Panama City Surgery Center. Located in Panama City, Florida, 
The Surgery Center offers top medical specialties and services in one convenient location with minimally invasive outpatient procedures to get you back to normal life quickly. The Vagicians Podcast is produced by host Rayanne Thorne Kruger. Our editor is Igor Kuzmanovsky, with Ike Isabella as our announcer. And finally, a special thanks to our spouses, partners, and families for their support, ideas, and feedback. Thank you.